0: Praise be to God. Got to set up the illustration here. Alright, so as we jump in to Romans chapter 7, we're actually in week 2. If you look at Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul dives deep into the depths of the process of our growth as as a Christian. And if you read the Bible, you'll run into that fancy Greek word that's translated sanctification. And that's the the positional and growing and then perfected. And in English, I was never good at English, but we don't have a perfect tense that Greek has. And so as I learned Greek, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Like, why don't, that's why I'm bad at English. Cause English is bad language. Like it's hard. It's, it's got problems. So I can blame it on that. But as we look at, as we laugh with me, as we look at this month, we're, we're talking about generosity and we have Strategic ministries, we're going to put in front of you and opportunities to give above and beyond over this month. And we look at the, the big, one of our values is evangelism and, and missions. And don't give any money here or anywhere. God doesn't want it if you, he doesn't already have your heart. This principle of the grasp by which we grasp the gospel is where our generosity flows from. So when we let go of the things that maybe we, we once held and now we we. Cling tightly to the gospel, then and only then will, will our heart love and long to be generous with our time, with our, our resources, and our talents. And when you think about this idea and concept of giving, it's always interesting where, where people are like, uh oh, it comes at the end of the year, people are at the end of the year giving, all these. But the amazing thing is because of your consistent giving and those that are committed to the gospel, we're able to. To see visions and dreams align, we're able to see the growth of God's kingdom. And it's not just in this local church, but it's globally. People are open to the gospel, and, and people are being creative with, hey, there's a people that are held captive, and if I have a pilot's license, if I get my helicopter license, I could fly in and help people and minister. And I'm like, wow, that's super creative, and I'm not called to do that. I'd love to go backpack into the jungle and tell someone about Jesus, but the whole hel- that's cool, you're gifted and equipped to do that. And yet we come to the practical, normal day of day-to-day of day life, and Jonathan Edwards comments on it too, that we've all heard from time to time. We see people walk down and say, okay, I'm following Jesus now, and then they talk the same like a sailor. Apparently they cuss a lot, because there's that phrase, cussing like a sailor, and usually the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, so that's not the only thing. Everything else goes the way of the, their flesh, and you're like, I thought you were following Jesus, but it appears your life hasn't changed really at all. And then in your own life, you're trying to grasp the gospel and how it really changes you. And what does that look like? Because all I experienced was in kids and in youth ministry, you hear these stories and then those that were able to be law keepers, they were the best behaved, they were the rewarded ones. You go to Awanas, the people that could memorize the verses the quickest, they had all the crowns, the jewels, like, there was just built-in reward system, and I couldn't do it. Like, I was not a law keeper by any means, and, and so then into high school, it was like, hey, repent, turn from your sins, stay back, pray, get a journal, we have another Bible study, I'm like, sweet, what Bible studies? And then into college, it's like, I'm still struggling with sin, like, all my journals uh, of every page saying, I'm sorry, Lord, is still there. I need to get on John MacArthur's tapes. I'll listen to that on the way to the secular, you know, biology at Cuesta. And I'll I'll be, in my mind, I'll be changed. And it's slowly, I started to see God do the work. But it wasn't instantaneous for me. And then you read Romans 7, and you're like, ah, Paul gets it. And he says, I'm not doing the things I want to do, and I'm doing the things I don't want to do. And then... You read the beginning of 7, and you're like, wait, what? I'm confused. <laughs> we're talking about divorce, and we we're talking about sin, and then you get to it, and it's like, okay, yeah, he's confused too. Who's going to save this wretched man? And then we go into Romans 8. And it's awesome, because then, that's next week, we see there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But this week, we're in a mess. We're, we're torn up, we're confused. And, and then last week, we talked about Paul using this, this view that we're dead to sin and alive to God, that our members of our body are, are dead to sin we're, we're alive to God. And he used this analogy, and, and he's talking to us in plain language of, of slavery. We're a slave to sin. We're a slave. We're bound. And then again, he uses the same kind of challenging language about divorce. And, and we'll come back to it because it helps us as we get into this to actually flip it and start at the end and work our way in reverse order. But I wanna cause a pause and give a little bit of clarity before we come back to the concluding part, looking at verses one through six. What will free the believers from the law? He's not talking about the entire teaching as, as Jesus unpacks, it's your hardness of heart. God graciously and caringly allowed for divorce for not just the death of a spouse, but there's also when adultery's in, in unrepentance, there's room there. But Paul's dealing with this analogy, again, in human terms, trying to get us to understand there's evil and there's sin in our life, and the law reveals it. And the law, like a wife married to a husband, the law as the husband never dies. So how can you marry another? How can you join yourself to another husband figuratively if legally you're always bound to someone who will never die? So legally in that analogy, again... Like all analogies, they break down. I love visuals, so we'll get there in a minute. But they always kind of break down a little bit. So don't get too hung up there. That's a a caution and a pause. So we're going to look at, first we see the outline of what will free the believers from the law. That's where we're going to land, verses 1 through 6. We're going to spend some time looking at the second point. What won't work against the law and sin? That's the majority of the text. This is what not to do. This is the Sunday, the sermon, this is what not to do when you see evil and sin in your life. Because we see thirdly where we're going to start is the believer's problem and power to overcome. So we see Christ freeing us, Christ frees us from the law and sin and empowers us to share the freedom we found in him. So the believer's problem and power to overcome. Verse 14 through 25, Paul puts it in verse 18 and 19 when he says, I have the desire to do what is right. For I know, he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I can aspire and have this envision, the right, but I don't find in myself the power to actually bring it to fruition. I can't execute it. Why? And the answer is what we call this this deep splitness of the human heart. In verse 20 he says, now if I, Do what I do not want. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There's me, and then there's something in me. He says it's sin. In fact, notice in verse 19, he talks about evil. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That word dwell, it's important because evil and sin... Is not something that just acts upon us from the outside, nor is it something that comes into us temporarily and camps out. If you know what you're doing, you can shoo it away. It is at home in us. It dwells in us. It resides in us. It's deeply rooted in us. As a result, there's this deep splitness. It's kind of like a cobweb. You know, just last night we looked up and there's this massive cobweb and this big old daddy long leg, and I was like, "Dude, you've been hanging out here for a long time," because that didn't just appear. But the, the perfect light is what illuminates the evil and sin that that's just takes up residence in us. And it's kind of natural. It just fits there. And, and even more so than just the daddy long leg, it's, it's kind of like, hey, there's just... I don't know if you've ever been in, in a home, but when we moved in, there was this wall. It just was there, just in between the living room and kitchen. And that's how they designed homes. Just there was a wall there. And it's like, why is there a wall there? We should take it out. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. It's just there, separating. And there's things in our life that are just the walls, that are just separating, and, and we, we, we give in to sin, it's natural, it knows our name, it's comfortable, it's how we've always lived, and all of a sudden, the law comes and says, hey, tear out the wall, and you're like, hmm, then the flooring, and then the drywall, and that's a problem, because there's a lot of work to do, and I'm not really skilled at taking out walls, and, and if you're like me, then I got the tools, and I have YouTube, so let's go, and then... You're married to someone who reminds you, this is our living room. We're always going to see the effects of this. Let's hire the professional. It's like, you're right. I'll do the demo, and then I'll do the floor. We'll get the pro in here to fix the drywall. And it's amazing because we jump into seven and see Paul's talking about this in all of his intellect. And the more I studied this and got excited about bringing the fruit to serve to you, there's the, a narrative that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote in the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And last night, because the wall was removed, even though I was studying, I looked at the TV and my son turned on Spider-Man, which, I mean, seriously, like, without the writer's deal, they have not come out with a creatively new idea for a movie, and I don't know how long, like, they have all these Spider-Mans that keep coming out, and now the Spider-Man that he had on was all the other Spider-Man characters in this one Spider-Man movie, And I was like, wait, this is like Inception Spider-Man. Like, what? There's Spider-Man with Spider-Man? Like, what's happening? And then there was the Dr. Jekyll character. And I'm like, oh, that's... Hey, he made it in my sermon. That's interesting. Have you ever really read the book, though? Or do you just see him as a supporting character on one of the new Spider-Mans? I don't even know the name of Spider-Man. It's just weird, you know, subtle ones. But I bet you haven't read the movie. You've just seen him as a supporting character. Or you've read the book. You've just seen the movie's. But the narrative, Dr. Jekyll came to realize this incongruous compound where there's the evil in him and there's the good. And so he comes up with this idea, which is similar to Romans 7. He comes up with this potion where he says, look, I'll separate the evil from the good. And at night, the evil can be evil. And during the day, I'll be unencumbered, unhindered by this evil part of me, and I can do all the good stuff. And it's a nice theory. The problem is he realizes just how wicked he is. The bad side is named Edward Hyde. Do you know why his name's Edward Hyde? It's an ingenious play on words. He was hideous, but it's because of his just hideousness he was also hidden. So Hyde is a play on words for hidden because of how evil he was. Even from Dr. Jekyll, he tried to hide himself. Here's how the narrative goes on. When Edward Hyde comes out, He's far more evil than Dr. Jekyll ever thought he would be and starts doing these terrible things, including murder. And we'll get to that in a second. But Dr. Jekyll says, I'm going to try and stop it then. I'm going to try and repress this evil side. But Edward Hyde more and more gets the upper hand and more and more is in control. When Dr. Jekyll realizes he's about to lose complete control and even more become Dr. Jekyll, but permanently becomes Edward Hyde. He kills himself, and that's how the story ends. It's super depressing. And Romans 7 is saying what Robert Lewis Stevenson is saying at the same time. We see that even the best people, even the most brilliant people, are Dr. Jekylls. And Apostle Paul says, even the best people have at the core of their being a hideousness, an evil a capacity for incredible self-centeredness. It's the self-absorption, the self-centeredness. It's me and my needs and my interests and my desires that give us that ability to be so self-centered. And even as a middle schooler, when I started to realize it's all about me, all of my emotions, all my thoughts, I want it to be focused on me. And I saw my family suffer because there were times I remember so distinctly, I wanted to go to the beach so bad with my youth leader and go skimboard and... And my family was like, no, you can't go to the beach. I'm like, no, I want to go. It's all about me and what I want to do. And then my family ended up taking me to the beach that afternoon. But it wasn't good enough. I was like in tears, emotional rage. I was like, oh, my life's over. I can't go to the beach with my youth leader. Everything's, ah, just take me now, Jesus. And then my youth leader and friends showed up at the same beach. And I just skimboarded with them at the same beach. And my family's like, see, at the end, you still got what you wanted. I was like, I know, but I'm still bitter and angry about it. And I don't know if you can relate, but when you think about it, I've just covered that up with how all the good things, oh, I'm a, I'm a husband now, I'm a dad, and I'm, I'm actually selfless. Look at me. Selfish, I mean, selfless Brandon it's really good. Like God's changed me. No, I'm still selfish. And the self-centeredness, it's like, oh, no wonder I don't like this chapter and want to jump to, hey, there's no, no condemnation. We're all good. Jesus loves me. Let's keep reading Romans 9 10. Let's figure that stuff out. Who, God hates what? Uh, let's get distracted by Romans 9. No, no, no focus on how evil you are today and I don't want to leave you there because I know some people have been like Brandon you love to talk about sin because when we look at the law how it reveals the sin in us we see how great God's love is that he loves us and frees us and we delight in that and so let's not forget entirely who we once were because that's how the world is stuck in bondage but we can delight that we've been freed from that. And we have the message to say, look, Jesus freed me. He can free you, come on, it's a lot better over here. I know I was just as self-centered and wretched and evil, but God loved me and freed me and saved me. And that's what Paul's doing here. Even the best people, there's a core of evil and a capacity to do terrible things way beyond what you believe and far greater, far worse than you ever imagined. I'll never forget being a youth pastor and like, okay, I'm good. I'm selfless now. Jesus saved me. Look at Philippians 2. The humility of Christ is now in my mind. I'm this youth pastor. and We can't go to Mexico because the car tells me it's too dangerous. So we're going to go to L.A. and I have this connection. And here I am in this ministry and we're doing the work. And I grew up doing in the, in the leader of this nationwide, highly recognized and Francis Chan wrote a book and made a bunch of money and gave money to this organization. And he had this, invested in this huge teen center. And so I'm like, oh, connections, maybe I'll get to meet Francis someday. Because the the leader, the director I was working with said, hey, the, the the CEO of this missions organization wants to meet you. I'm like, wow, I'm somebody. So I'm like, uh-oh, there's self-centered branding looking back coming up. Like, I can name drop this. And so I go and I sit down with him. And I'm sitting with this leader of this nationwide recognized and, and global organization. Uh, ministry and and he's meeting with me and and the moment i sat down i had this the first experience where the spirit of discernment just it was uneasy it was like this is not a ministry we're not talking about jesus we're not talking about god and glorifying him this is all about you wanting my church to give you money and that's all the conversation was about every time let's talk about what god's doing or where god's moving and how are the is like no 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 i just want to know when your church is going to start giving us money like, yeah, this is more business than than ministry. This is more about money and and getting money for you. And and weeks, months later, it came out, he he left his family, left the ministry, and and ran off with a prostitute he'd been seeing on the side, committed adultery. And it's crazy how reading this, so many of those stories came up. Missionaries who said, you know what, I'm I'm done. And people came, why did you? Why'd you walk away from your wife, your ministry, your missionary, you're on the front lines. I just gave up the fight. I was tired of fighting. I was tired of fighting the evil that's in me. There was so much evil and sin and I was tired of fighting against that. I just wanted to give in. And if we're honest, we all have it in us. If we're honest, we all have it in us. And, and a pastor I looked up to for years said every time a, a pastor falls or someone in ministry falls, he takes it and puts it in a file. And every once in a while he takes the file out and reads through it and reminds himself humbly, Romans 7. We're one step away from from saying, my good works are enough. And then quickly we realize, no, look at all the evil you're trying to hide, you're trying to cover up. And it's at the core, that fear of being found out that you're really that self-centered and depraved and you're capable of that evil. Uh, Interestingly, I found out one of the bands I used to listen to, Sufjan Stevens, an indie rock artist, some of you might know, but there's a song called John Wayne Gacy Jr. It's a song about a serial killer. Like, wow, pastor used to listen to the serial killer music. Weird, I know. I didn't know, was, you know the CD pamphlets, those weren't a thing anymore. You just download music, listen to it. It's indie rock, I'm They're Absolutely astounding, in fact, even the music critics at the Village Voice were blown away. At the very end, he's singing about the serial killer and how awful, what a terrible person, an incredible serial killer he was. And the very last line goes like this, In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I've hid. I think that's what kind of drew me to the indie and the old country songs where they'd actually be the honest. It wasn't about dogs and trucks and stuff. It was about the real depravity of of the relational breakdown. And when we're honest, when we're honest, these terrible things exist for us. We're all capable of doing these horrible things. Do you believe that Robert Louis Stevenson is saying and Sufyan is saying and Paul is saying that your capacity for hideous selfishness is way beyond what we think. We keep covering it up. But Christ frees us from the law and sin, empowering us to share the freedom we found in him. He says in verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So here's the main point, what won't work against the law to sin. When we realize how depraved we are and how dark and evil we really are and selfish, the main solution most people try to bring upon themselves that Paul says doesn't work has to do with the moral law. And again, we're not looking at sin to be woe is me, but we're looking at it to go, well, look at what Christ freed me from. Look at what he saved me for. And I still have those verses I memorized in Iwana. So it's a great ministry. It's just when you put reward systems, that's where we run to it. And we go, oh, memorize verses, then I'm good. And then all of a sudden you realize under the floorboards you have dead bodies there, and all the evil and, and selfishness and, and sin that you've done. Well, what is, is a verse going to take care of that? Is a good deed going to take care of that? And we see this is what our world is set up by moral law. C.S. Lewis, at the end of his book, Ab- Abolition, Ab- Abolition of Man, in the appendix, he wrote this, comparing the moral law of Confucianism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity, and Judaism. He shows they all agree on the requirements God has for us. Isn't that interesting? When it comes to the moral law, no matter what religious sect you ascribe to, meeting weekly, celebrating, indoctrinating, yeah, we have it in our, in our evangelical services, so, so many people are like, you got to, pastor, get people to come down the aisle. Like, no. I was one that came down the aisle. That didn't help me. If anything, it hurt me. It's the relationship with Christ, it's discipleship. Weird. That's what Jesus told us to do. Go make disciples, pray for them, listen to them. Really listen. That's why we, I don't want to pray or listen. Just come down the aisle, get saved, get changed. It's all better. Sign here. When's your church going to fund me? It gets real. It hurts, it's harder. You can't walk that out. Because you have to actually have a transformed heart. Jesus has to do the work. And as we read this, we realize, oh, there is a moral law that we run to in cultures of all religions have it. We celebrate it, we obey it, we instruct our kids to it. We say, apply in the moral law. If you do these things, and we change it, right? Because it's, it's some of them we have to adjust to and contextualize, but... Paul's saying it won't work. Paul's saying something absolutely amazing in verse five. He says, look at, he says, for while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul says the law has a greenhouse effect. What's wrong with us? When we see the law says to do something or not to do it, it expands it, right? When I was in high school, I looked at my room and my brother, we were sharing a room and I saw that CDs needed to be cleaned up and there's clothes from like three weeks ago, probably need to be put in the wash. And I was like, first thing, I still am crusty from some surfing and salt water. I'm going to take a shower and then I'll take care of this mess. And as I got out of the shower, walking out, my mom walks by and is like, hey, Brian, when are you going to clean your room? And at that moment I was like, that's the last thing I'm going to do. I'm going to go surf actually, because you told me what I should do. And that's how the law works. You should do this. That's the absolute one thing I'm never going to do then. Or don't do this. Okay, I'm going to do it. It's the whole cookie jar analogy, right? It's amazing when, when Paul's talking about this, this is what you have to do. It doesn't make you a better person. It makes you worse, actually. It brings it out. It aggravates you. Don't steal. Don't lie. Never forget when I was at this weird quickie mart that posted up. There was no gas station there was just candy and so back in the 90s you could actually ride your bike in a Tascadero and it was a lot safer or whatever and so my parents didn't see me for many hours and I had 50 cents which actually could buy you candy back then too and so I had 50 cents and a bike and there I am at this cookie mart and I'm I'm buying a Butterfinger and I was excited I love Butterfingers and and at the at that moment I realized like oh I'm worshiping one true God I'm, I'm I haven't killed anyone like I'm a really good person and then there was this juice of, of breath freshener, like, like, and I was like, that's weird. And my friend had some, you know, and the week before, and I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting. And as the moment the, the cashier turned his back, I didn't have money to buy it, and I grabbed it and put it in my pocket real quick, and this like thrill of oh, I just stole something. Can I get away with this? It was like 20 cents, but I stole it. And so then I walk out and I, and I get on my bike and this like invigoration, I go around the corner and I squeeze it in my mouth real quick and throw it in his trash can and get away with the evidence and I felt so guilty but at the same time I was like, what have I done? I don't even have bad breath, like I, <laughs> I don't even like this, like this isn't even something I liked when I used my friend's like Banaka mouth spray, like it was super weird, like this is weird, why did I just feel like I wanted to steal that, I'm that evil. It was interesting reading about, St. Augustine had the same exact thing, only for him it was pears. He wasn't hungry, and he didn't even like pears. So after he stole these pears from someone, he just fed them to the pigs. We've all been there to some degree, and it's like, man, I, I never knew I had the capacity to steal before. I'm a horrible person. What verse did I memorize in a that's going to make me feel better? There's something about the heart deep inside the aspect of our hideousness, self-centeredness, self-absorption. I was only thinking about myself. And as I rode my bike up the hill, which was brutal. It was a long hill on a BMX bike. But what was more brutal was that guilt and that like, hey, you are a sinner. And it's like, shut up, Satan. I knew you were going to do this. You're going to tell me to do something good. It's really bad. I listened to you. And now he's like, yeah, you're, no one can ever love you or forgive you. I'm like, oh, nobody tells me how to live though. I want to live however I want. And the rest of us, a lot of us. Are very nice on the outside, but deep inside, Mr. or Miss, Mrs. Jekyll is a part of our hearts that absolutely hates being told how to live our life. And that's that response was, don't steal. Oh, really? Well, let's see how stealing works out. Oh, it actually isn't good. Wow, something you thought of ahead of time, God. Weird how that works out. Like, that's actually not good for me. Or the store owner that lost 50 cents, which now would be like $3. But the, the part that we focus on, the moral law is... The money or or the act. The problem as we get into what the law is revealing, it's our heart. He says, I was alive apart from the law. But then one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, came home and slew me, Paul says. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. Paul was saying, I was spiritually alive. I was alive. I was running. I'm spiritually alive. I'm pretty good. He's, he's probably thinking I have a chance at being saved, really a chance of getting God's blessing. The reason he felt alive like a good person, like we tend to look at the, the Ten Commandments and it's, it's really our external behavior. And as you go down, he's saying, okay, I don't bow down to any statutes. I call my mom and dad once a week honoring my parents. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not killing anyone. Well, I haven't killed anyone but Christians, but they deserved it. And Paul's like going through this external list, and then he gets down to the 10th commandment. And it says it's about motives. It's your heart. Are you content with God? Or are you coveting? Thou shalt not covet. Do you know what that opposite of coveting is? It's contentment. Are we desiring Jesus? Are we content with Jesus? Or are we looking at what our neighbor has? Or what we don't have? Are we coveting? When he looked inside his heart, he saw all kinds of coveting. He saw all kinds of stuff. Anger. Because he was killing people that didn't agree with him. He was persecuting the church. He saw fury, self-righteousness, envy. Comparing himself to others. Again, it comes back to what he's talking about here is the self-centeredness, the lostness, the the bondage he had in sin. And we see again in Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde this fascinating passage when we read it it just blows me away. Dr. Jekyll realized Edward Hyde was killing people and he made a resolution no more potion, never again, I'm not going to take that anymore and now I'm going to outdo the bad I was doing by doing good things. I'm going to volunteer at Echo 300 out of the 365 days a year. I'm going to go out of the riverbed and give everyone new tents and new jet boils. And I'm going to give them all the top ramen they want. And I'm going to clothe them. And I'm going to do all these amazing things. And I'm going to adopt all the puppies from the Woods Humane Society. And I'm going to build a shell. I'm going to do all these great things. I'm going to find horses and give them, do all these great things for everybody and every creation. And, and then it, he says, I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past. My resolve was to be fruitful And it ends with him at Regent's Park and he's looking out at all the losers, sinners, selfish people and he says, he's comparing his active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of the neglect. He's like, you guys never even know Echo existed. You guys have never been in the riverbed. Look at me, I did all these good things. And just then, he looks down and he realizes once more Edward Hyde had become him but it was without any help of the potion. Because of his good works, he brought about the evil that resided within him, without any assistance from the potion he created. He'd become Edward Hyde without the potion. What happened? How did that happen? He became Edward Hyde through his goodness, not in spite of his goodness. And that's why Romans 7 is a painful chapter to read. Because you're like, sweet, the law. I'll just not steal and not commit adultery, and then God will get me into heaven. What about the 10th commandment? There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord rather than God and trample on other people. One is by saying, I'm going to live my own life. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to break all the rules, all the moral laws. I'm going to break all of them. I'm going to do whatever I want because I'm my own God. The other is to say, I'm going to be so good that God is going to have to bow down and worship me and bless me. And he has no choice but to take me to heaven because I'm that good. But you're miserable because you're always comparing yourself to other people. You're so self-centered and self-focused that you're fearful you're going to be found out to be a fraud rather than joyfully freed through Christ's work on the cross. So what will really free the believer from the law? What's going to free us from this? As the rich ruler comes to Jesus with the same angst and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? i got to do good things, right? What else can I do? And Jesus goes through the law and he's like, I've done all those things, okay? Then sell all you have and give the money to the poor and then come follow me. But his generosity is not possible because he hasn't grasped the gospel. his, His heart is so fearful that he'll be found out and then he was found out. And Jesus said, just come, my way is easy, my burden is light, just come follow me, just let go of that thing that's weighing you down, that fear that you're that selfish, and he walked away, hanging his head selfishly, self-absorbed, realizing I was just found out, and there's no hope for me anymore, because Jesus is the only hope, and once you turn away from him, you've done yourself in, and so what's going to free the believer from the law, verses 1-6, through Sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, but under grace. We see that grace is where God does something for you. In law, we do something for God. In verse, we see verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The trouble in Romans 7, the man tries to do something to please God, tries to do the law, but realizes he's saved by grace, not by his works. And God brings us to this place to convince us that yes, Romans 6:23, all have sinned and you've sinned, I've sinned, we're all sinners and we all need God's grace to save us and sustain us. We see that in Romans 6, the sin, the sinner was was master to sin. But we see in, in chapter 7, law, he, he gives us this analogy of we're married. We're like the, the bride married to the law. And the challenge is if we're married to a husband legally, the only way to be freed from that marriage and that covenant is if the law, the husband, dies. The problem, the law never dies. So you're basically, there's no hope for you. I'm like, thanks a lot, Paul. This is not a good analogy. Try Try again. You know, the editor would have rejected this. Hey, you know, we can't sell this. This analogy is really depressing and dark. Think of another one, Paul. He's like, no, no, no. hang with me, hang with me. Think about this. You're, you're the woman, and the law requires much and perfection, and you can't do it, but you're always married to the law, and, and the new husband comes, Jesus, and you want to be married to him, but the only way to be free is if, if one dies. And so we see that we, as we see in, in verse 4, The woman, you and I, die with Christ and are freed from the law. So it's not that the law dies, it's that we die with Christ. If you've read the Bible before, you'll hear this analogy that we've died with Christ. And and as Paul says, the the life I live, I live now in Christ through Christ. And that's where at first glance, you're like, this is a weird analogy. That's why Paul's like, hang on, let's get to verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we see, you don't want people to find out who you really are. You have a life full of all the things you've done. And elsewhere, Paul says, yeah, wood, hay, and stubble. You're going to go before the, the judgment seat, the Bemis seat, and it's all going to burn up everything you've done. And If that's all you have, you got nothing. So we look at the law, and we go, okay, I'm going to worship the one true God, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal, I'll try not to do that, and you start building your life, and, and it's super heavy to do what the law requires, it's super heavy, and then we go, oh, your way is easy, your burden is light, okay, I'm going to memorize that verse, Jesus, oh, there's no room for it, it doesn't fit, because in Ezekiel, it says God's going to take the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, so he takes our sin, picks it up, covers it, carries it away, remembers it no more, that's what it means to be forgiven. So we talk about the gospel of grace. God does the work that he demands us to do. Paul never says the law is sin. He's like, no, the law is awesome. The bummer, though, is when the law is revealed, like a mirror showing me my sin, all I want to do is sin all the more until I have a new heart. That's why you have to have a, a, a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, and then everything that Christ is is in you, and Christ is all sufficient. So that's my perfect analogy don't make fun of it. Don't critique it. It's great alone, okay? We have to understand the challenge that Paul uses human simple language to dis- describe the intricacies of sin and the law and how it creeps in. And it knows our name because we're so self centered and self focused and we love ourselves. We think, oh, I'm going to do these good things. And we're going to show off how awesome and full. But really, at the end of the day, it's just weighty and you have to maintain it. But inside you're always comparing yourself to other people and you're crushed by criticism. And you're furious, condescending towards people who don't have your beliefs. You can't handle failure. you try to deal with your fear because you're so afraid of being found out as a fraud. At the end of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Jekyll actually ends up killing himself because justice is at the door. The police are closing in. And he's been able to hold him off as he turns into Dr. Jekyll, but he realizes he was becoming Hyde permanently, and it was only a matter of time before they caught him. And justice is always at the door. Your sin is always going to find you out. So either you pay for it, or you believe and accept Jesus' payment for it. One of the two ways sin has to be paid for. And that's why Jesus was so excited. He's the one that wanted to come and pay for your sin. And he said, I'm so excited we get to have this meal together. And then I get to go pay for your sin. But right now we get to have a meal. And the disciples were like, yeah, it's Passover. We always, every year we have this meal. It's cool. Jesus is really pumped on this meal, apparently. But Judas just left. Like, And Jesus fully knowing Peter, one of his boys, was going to deny him three times. He still wanted to have the meal with Peter. So even now, as the Spirit's revealing Maybe your love for the law because you're way better than me at at keeping the moral law. I did our path, we need to pray for his breath really. Does he know he could brush his teeth? Yes, I do, okay, it's not about the breath mint. But we all are evil. We have the capacity to do really dark, evil things. But now we have the freedom and to walk in that newness of life. No matter how hard you hide, no matter how often you put it off, eventually your sin will find you out. And that's where we, we look at the amazing thing that I want to encourage you as you read scripture it's all pointing to Jesus and then the New Testament it's all pointing back and saying man we missed it look at all of the signposts look at all the prophecies look at all the words that were telling us to expect Jesus and here's who he is and here's the time and look at the wonderful thing he did for us and Isaiah 52 and 53 talks about Jesus Christ the suffering servant who came to save us and this is what it says about him they were appalled at him his appearance was disfigured beyond that of a man and from his marred form was beyond human likeness he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men like one from whom men would hide their face and we esteemed him not but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Do you hear this? We're appalled at him. He was hideous. We couldn't look upon him, but we turned our faces from him. And Paul comments in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin so that in him we would have the righteousness of God. This great exchange would take place where he takes all of the things that we try to do that we're good, but really, if we're honest, we only do the good to outweigh the bad to feel good about ourselves. So really that's selfish and sinful. And he takes all that on him to purify us because it's only in his righteous robes that we're able to get into heaven. It's only in Jesus. It's only when the blood of Jesus covers us that it's clear his payment removed our sin and replaced it with his righteous, perfect life. We see that God made him sin, treated him as pure evil. Jesus Christ became the hideous one when he took our judgment that day. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, that he could present us to himself pure, beautiful, without spot or blemish. We're the bride. That's why Paul uses that image of a bride again. Jesus started the illustration. Paul just added on to it. We're the bride, needing to be pure, needing to be all the sin removed and replaced with his righteous, without spot or blemish. It's his work in us. We don't have to feel like, man, I got to really do good this week because I got stuff to, no, don't do that. You meet with God right now and realize like Jesus is having a meal with you like he had with his disciples. I'm so excited. Only he's not going to pay for it. He's already paid for it. And because he freed you from the law and sin, go tell everybody that you found freedom in him. That's what he said. I'm coming back for you. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, don't worry. I'm the ultimate prepper. I'm preparing a place for you. I'll come back and get you. Go tell everyone how I freed you. That's the focus. The immoral version. I'm afraid God is going to oppress me, so I have to live the way I want to live. Or the moral version, I'm afraid God is going to get me, so I better be good. Put those away and realize Jesus has already declared you good because of the good he's done, the perfect life he's lived. And he's planned a purpose for you, not to harm you or destroy you, but to bless you. And we have that in Jesus. As he says, we have a new motive, gratitude, security, and love. At the end of seven, he says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thanks be to God. He gets it. He came to set me free from this struggle I'm in. Don't give up the fight, Christian. Fighting against the temptation of sin, fighting against what calls your name, what you know to be comfortable. Let Jesus remove it and replace your desire with his. And for those who've never accepted Jesus and trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior, do that today. It's as simple as saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I don't know everything yet, but I know that I need you to save me and remove my sin and replace it with your righteousness. And Paul says, if you believe in your heart and you out we already know you knew it all from the beginning you know that number of hairs on our head you know the amount of lies things we've stolen things we've done the selfishness that continues to plague each and every one of us you know that and you set us free from that through sending your son to make disciples to show us it's a process but the payment is final and secure our debt has been paid and the life we now live, we live to Christ because our old self has died with you. We're, we're dead to the law and sin, but we're alive to Christ, the one who kept the law perfectly and was without sin. We have that identity as sons and daughters of the King. We rejoice in that. And as we sit with you, may you reveal in our heart the areas where maybe there's a cobweb we need to remove or something that's comfortable in our life where we've allowed sin that we need to allow your grace The work that you do on our behalf to remove it from our lives as you forgive us and set us free to share how we found that freedom in you with all who would hear and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.